from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. So here we go. Welcome to The Cut Podcast. If this is the first time you're joining us, welcome. Our first episode uh, of The Cut Podcast was my debate with Rabbi Shmuley Boteach at the Manhattan Jewish Experience in New York. Uh, and I thought it would be a good idea, having prepared for that debate and spent all the time really uh, delving back into the issues of circumcision, which I had dealt with in my film uh, Cut, I thought it would be a good idea to really start to have uh, high-level discussions about the subject of circumcision with serious people. And one such serious person is, uh, I'm happy to say, with me today. Jeff, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Ellie. Um, my name is Jeff Helmreich. I'm a philosophy PhD at UCLA, specializing in ethics, philosophy of mind, and legal philosophy. Before that, I was a lawyer clerking for a federal judge, and before that, a United Nations speechwriter. And I have been captivated by the issues of circumcision and the ethics about it ever since you, Ellie, called it to my attention. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us here. And, uh, you know, the way I see it, part of your job today is keeping me honest. And uh, there aren't a lot of people I trust to do that, but Jeff is definitely one of those people. And uh, he has a resume to back that up. So uh, I'm looking forward Thank to you. the discussion. Um, today, what we're going to do is we're going to be talking specifically about one article, um, two really. Um, it's called Between Prophylaxis and Child Abuse, the Ethics of Neonatal Male Circumcision. It's by Michael and David Benatar. I don't know, but I assume that they're brothers. Uh, I know that Michael Benatar is the head of a philosophy department in South Africa. And I'm sorry, that's David Benatar. And Michael Benatar is, I believe, a neurologist. Um, and they, uh, I think I saw somewhere that he, he had studied at Harvard or done a residency there or something. So um, they're very distinguished people. Um, this article was published in the American Journal of Bioethics in 2003 uh, to uh, great interest from uh, many, many different people who are interested uh, in thinking about the subject of circumcision. They actually wrote, a, the Benatars wrote a follow-up essay to, to the, the one that we're discussing now. I've incorporated some of their points there. It's called How Not to Argue About Circumcision. It was a response to uh, the sort of barrage of criticism that they got for writing this article. And it's remarkable in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, there, and the authors themselves make this point in the in the essay, there doesn't seem to be a lot of um, discussion of circumcision in the bioethics literature. Now, th this is interesting, and I always assumed that it was due to the fact that everyone understood that it was wrong, so there was nothing to talk about. Uh, of course, uh, the Benatars uh, look at it in the exact opposite way, and they say that... Um, the reason there isn't a lot in the literature is because everyone seems to agree that it's all right. Um, and of course, the, that's what the whole discussion is about, you know, is, is um, neonatal male circumcision morally permissible or not? And um, let me uh, 
Let me just start by uh, giving a summary of their argument. Uh, and Jeff, if I'm making a mistake at some point or if I'm misrepresenting, please jump in and say, you know, I think you should phrase that a, a little differently or that's not exactly what they were saying. Uh, well, uh, I'll try and do it in as succinct a manner as possible. It is a very um, subtle argument. It's not the sort of typical thing that you hear from people uh, on the subject of circumcision. And that's one of the reasons that I think it will be um, really great to talk about because there are subtleties in this argument that um, and sophistication to this argument that I haven't seen in many people who, and of course, they fundamentally disagree with what I think about uh, infant circumcision, which is that it is wrong. Uh, but I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Let me do my best in trying to summarize it, uh, summarize the argument, and uh, then we'll try and go point by point and uh, see whether it has any merit. Sound like a plan? Sure. And I have a lot of respect for Professor Benatar's philosophy, so uh, I'm excited to apply it to this question. Excellent. Okay, so the, the first part of their argument has to do with the question of whether or not circumcision can be considered mutilation. Uh, a lot of uh, opponents of circumcision um, bring up this issue, and they say that, that just by definition, male circumcision is mutilation. And the Benatar start off and they launch into their argument by saying that one cannot assume that a surgical procedure is disfigurement or mutilation simply because it alters the body. And the examples that they bring to, to demonstrate this point are breast reduction, liposuction, and rhinoplasty. And what they say is that such surgeries may be enhancing or aesthetically neutral. Therefore, they are not, therefore, it's not true to say and you cannot assume that a surgical procedure, by definition, is disfigurement or mutilation. Um, and they then go on to say, of course, that a surgical procedure is, that that a surgical procedure is harmful is something that must be demonstrated rather than merely asserted. That's the first part of their argument. Uh, they then move on to say that it is possible for a disfiguring surgical procedure, all things considered to be beneficial rather than injurious. And the example that they bring is the amputation of a gangrenous limb. Um, and in that instance, they say a mutilation, where you're taking off a gangrenous limb, is all things considered a benefit, and therefore it can be morally justified or morally justifiable. So this is the second part of their argument. Um, and they actually add here, this is a very interesting point, we'll come back to all of these in, in just a little bit, but they add that the benefit from circumcision would need to be much smaller than the benefit from cutting off a gangrenous limb because circumcision is a much less radical alteration than amputation of a limb. In the next part of the article, they go on to discuss the issue of informed consent. Uh, one of the big things that a lot of opponents of circumcision bring up is that um, circumcision is a procedure, it's a surgical procedure that's being done on a, a person who by definition cannot offer consent. And the following, uh, the follow-up to that argument is oftentimes uh, short of something that is absolutely medically necessary 
parents are not authorized to make non-essential medical decisions for their children. And so what the Benatars say to this is, uh, they question this notion. They say, is it clear that parents are morally entitled to authorize medical interventions only for clear and immediate medical necessity? And the, the, the counterexample that they bring is vaccination. They say there are lots of parts of the world in which um, the diseases against which children are vaccinated are now rare, and therefore the necessity of such vaccination for any individual child is neither clear nor immediate. Nevertheless, by delaying vaccination, you may indeed undermine some of its benefits. Uh, and they go on to say, of course, it seems entirely reasonable that parents are morally entitled to choose for their child whether or not to vaccinate them. This is a bit of a subtle argument, and I want to sort of be very clear about what the Benatars are saying here. They're asking us to take circumcision as an individual act, uh, completely divorced from uh, the notion of circumcision as a public health measure, for example. That's not something that they're arguing for, and we'll, we'll come back to in their conclusions. They are not arguing for routine infant circumcision. That's an important distinction uh, to be made and not to be missed, that they are not arguing for routine infant circumcision. They are arguing about whether uh, performing circumcision on an individual child is morally permissible. Uh, and that, uh, that relates here to the way that they frame the vaccination issue because they they say that it's comparable, that it's analogous, because in the vaccination situation, uh, we have a world, uh, or let's say we have parts of the world, uh, certain developed uh, countries, uh, the United States, Europe, for example, where certain diseases are not running rampant anymore. Therefore, the question of whether to vaccinate an individual child is not one of public health. Um, and they say that we still intuitively believe that a parent should be able to make that decision for their child. Therefore, it's clear um, that parents are morally entitled to authorize medical interventions that, that aren't just about uh, immediate medical necessity. Uh, to sort of buttress this point, they go on to say, uh, the role of a parent is not simply to save children from immediate catastrophe, but to protect and foster a child's long-term best interests. The examples that they bring are orthodontics and schooling. Uh, and typically, the things which parents may not consent for their children are those that are unequivocally harmful. So it's a two-part to that point. Uh, the next point that they make is uh, a somewhat... Uh, more minor point, but it, it, we'll come back to it uh, when we talk about these issues. Uh, it can't be argued that nothing is lost by delaying a choice about circumcision of one's child until he can make it himself. Oftentimes uh, in discussions about circumcision, opponents to circumcision will say, uh, we oppose circumcision and it should be self-evident that preserving this choice for an individual is the right move. So what they're saying here is that you can't really say that it's just about preserving the choice because you are actually um, sort of uh, uh, curtailing other kinds of benefits that might be gained were they not circumcised uh, at, at, at infancy. Uh, but that, that point that um, at the very least circumcision may be psychologically unpleasant in adults in a way that it is not in infants is a way of countering the argument that 
clearly and self-evidently preserving the choice of when to circumcise uh, is the preferable option. They then go on to say, having established that a moral assessment of neonatal circumcision cannot be made without considering what the costs and benefits are, they, we now turn to the empirical evidence on, on these matters. And I don't want to um, deal with every single point. They do, uh, they do spend a lot of time uh, weighing up what they consider to be the costs and benefits. I just want to highlight, and, and I, I will come back to the individual points that they make about the, uh, the costs and benefits. Uh, a lot of the discussion in this part of the article deals with uh, complications, uh, pain, penile cancer, urinary tract infections, HIV, sexually transmitted diseases. And I, if we have time, I'll come back to talk about uh, these aspects and how they dealt with it, uh, in my opinion. This, the, there's, there's quite a bit of data in there. But I do want to highlight at this juncture uh, one point that comes in their other considerations category. Uh, and, and this is what they say. Conflicting claims have been made about the relationship between circumcision and sexual pleasure in the man and his female partner. On the one hand, it has been argued that circumcised men experience less sexual pleasure. This has been explained by the keratinization of the exposed glands and loss of highly erogenous propucial tissue. However, what li little evidence there is on this matter suggests that the circumcised glands is no less sensitive. Moreover, removal of erogenous tissue does not necessarily entail diminished sexual pleasure if sufficient erogenous tissue remains. Others have argued that sexual dysfunction is less common in, the, in circumcised men and that the circumcised status is preferred by female partners. It is possible that additional uh, increments of erogenous tissue do not increase sexual pleasure. So the argument here, uh, and of course this goes directly to the heart of the center of my argument against circumcision, is that there isn't sufficient evidence to suggest that um, there is a direct relationship between uh, circumcision and reduced sexual pleasure. Uh, and they also make this very interesting point that directly relates to my central argument against circumcision, which is that removal of erogenous tissue does not necessarily entail diminished sexual pleasure if sufficient erogenous tissue remains. So they're trying there to make a distinction between sexual pleasure on the one hand and the quantity of erogenous or sexual tissue on the other, arguing that, that the, 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 the one does not necess necessitate the other, that, 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 there, that there's a distinction that needs to be made there, a significant uh, and salient distinction. So the conclusion uh, in the wrap-up is that um, they feel that clearly circumcision has both costs and benefits. The most significant cost of neonatal circumcision in the Benatar's mind is the pain that accompanies it. Uh, and for that reason, uh, and the benefits they claim, and we didn't touch on, uh, again, we didn't go into the, they're dealing with the health benefits issues, but they, they believe that it has a mild reduction in urinary tract infections, a mild reduction in penile cancer, mild effect on uh, HIV transmission uh, in a sort of protective manner. Uh, so they, they feel that and then the pain on the other hand. Um, but their conclusion is that um, neonatal circumcision cannot be said to yield a net medical gain or loss 
In other words, it's not something that can be said to be routinely indicated, nor something that is routinely contraindicated. It is a discretionary matter, and the decision should be made by the parents. That's their conclusion. The conclusion, incidentally, uh, uh, fits uh, very nicely with the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation that was originally written in 1999, reasserted in 2005 and 2009, and stands to this day, which is that while they don't recommend routine infant circumcision, they do believe that it should be up to the parents to make their own call. And this is the position that the Benatars uh, arrive at. So that's the argument. Uh, so what do you think? Uh, general thoughts about the Benatar's argument. Well, first of all, I couldn't have said it better. I think you've uh, recounted it, I think, in very faithfully. And I admire a lot about the argument. I think it's subtle. I think it zeroes in on what I, I take to be the salient issues. And I agree with a lot of the points made. I can't find myself agreeing with the thesis, the conclusion. I don't think, strictly speaking, the argument is valid to me. Just for the trivial reason that when we don't know whether a practice or a behavior is harmful or not, when the balance of empirical considerations seem to be tied, which is sort of what they suggest, the answer is not, therefore, it's up to the discretion of the parents. It's up, to, it's up to us. We can do what we want because the evidence that something is harmful or not is equally balanced. Just to give an example, a new drug comes out or a new chemical or a new food to ingest and we don't know whether it's safe or not. The jury is still out. The empirical evidence seems to be inconclusive. I don't think the answer is therefore it's up to you to eat it if you want or eat it at your peril, I think, or ingest it at your peril. You know, buyer beware. I think... When you don't know, the answer is, you don't know. Uh, and I, I think it's a separate question. I think it's premature, rather, to say that it's a discretionary issue. I mean, at the end of the day, either circumcision is permissible or it's impermissible. And if they do not believe that circumcision is impermissible, it's permissible, frankly. Uh, now, they to be... To be respectful, to to be um, to do justice to their argument, they don't quite say that it's not impermissible. I think that they, and this is where I I'm in large agreement with them. They point to some of the factors that, if true, would make it impermissible, and say those factors haven't been, to their satisfaction, conclusively demonstrated. So, for example, if it turns out that it is harmful, and harmful, not just harmful, but harmful in a way that outweighs the gains, which they, they point to and suggest of being circumcised. The harm of being circumcised outweighs the gain. It would be impermissible for all that they have argued. So they do not think that there's an in-principle argument for the permissibility of circumcision. They're saying it turns on certain factors, and those factors haven't been conclusively demonstrated. So for the meantime, we can't conclude for sure on the basis of the empirical evidence whether the harms outweigh the gains and so we're not going to make a conclusion we're just going to say it's at the discretion so my overall reaction is they're 100% to me 100% persuasive and compelling on what the factors are what it, this debate turns on I agree with them I agree with them that it is a serious moral concern what parents can do to their children, 
before the children can consent. I think that they don't have the rights that people commonly take them to have. And I think it's important that they weigh considerations as though none of them are sacred. Sacred is a funny word to use in the context of a religious, religiously laden concept of practice like circumcision, but they, they, they feel like you, everything is commensurate and weighable. The medical benefits versus the cultural harms, or the cultural benefits versus the medical harms. It's all to be weighed. This is a question of weighing the pluses and minuses and finding out what to do. Um, there was one other objection I had to the argument, but I, I've said a lot, so. No, please go ahead. This is a, a common thing in the bioethics literature, which is to argue from, and actually in, in the ethics literature generally, applied ethics in general, which is to take a settled intuition about something and argue to new cases. This kind of moral casuistry, where you say, look, we have no problem with doing this. Turns out circumcision is not that different from doing this. Therefore, circumcision is fine. Where circumcision is, is, we have a big problem with doing that, like female circumcision, which they talk about. Circumcision is like that, so let's, let's, uh, let's apply it. And I think that that is a suspect form of argumentation when we're dealing with practices done on infants because the status quo is likely to be dominated by settled routine practices that haven't been challenged for centuries and for generations. And we're only beginning to appreciate, thanks to the innovative arguments by people like David Benatar, we're only beginning to appreciate that we should even question in the first place what we do to infants, whether we even have infants, whether we bring them into the world, what names we give them. The whole idea that it isn't ours to decide the fate and life and structure and direction of an infant is, uh, is altogether new. And so the fact, for example, that we vaccine we vaccinate infants without question doesn't speak to whether we should. The fact that we choose their educational path, which the mentors mentioned in the article, in a certain way doesn't mean that we should. The fact that we accept these other cases doesn't mean that we should. When it comes to practices on infants, we are at the beginning of the ethical exploration of the phenomenon. It's like when we first started thinking about racial or gender equality hundreds of years ago. Settled intuitions were much less reliable, much less uh, a basis, I think, for argument. Uh, and so I th that's the only other place where I would, one of the other places I would disagree with what they've said is that it's very difficult to make too much of what else we do to children that prejudice their lives and argue, argue from that to the justification of circumcision. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, what, one of the things I want to make clear, now I feel like I'm in an art crit uh, <laughs> in art school when you have a critique. So one of the things that you do is you, um, you try to uh, tell people what you liked about their work before you tear it to shreds, just as a sort of way of balancing. So I do want to um, address what I like about the argument also before I start to talk about my problems with it. And, and, and one of the things that I do like about their argument actually is that they don't fall into the usual trap of um, you know, creating an artificial distinction between um, male uh, genital cutting and female genital cutting. And I try to be very careful about the language I use when I talk about this. 
uh, because I think language is very important. So I try to use the neutral terms, genital cutting. I did that in the debate. I try to do that generally speaking, because when you're talking about the ethics of a practice, or let's put it this way, when you're exploring whether a practice is ethically permissible, I think to be as neutral as possible in your use of languages is an important thing. Um, but they don't fall into the usual trap of sort of saying, you know, um, well, male circumcision is clearly um, not as bad as female circumcision. They sort of have a nuance to the way they look at that. Uh, I, I would like to... Uh, to talk about a few points that I, I think are problematic and ultimately sort of um, cause the whole sort of edifice that they're building here to fail. I agree with you entirely. I think that they they nail uh, the points of, of concern. I just think that they don't reach the correct conclusions based on those concerns. Um, and the first thing that really um, struck me and stuck out to me uh, was in their discussion at the beginning about mutilation. Uh, just to, to reiterate, they, they said that we can't assume that a surgical procedure is disfigurement or mutilation simply because it alters the body. And the examples they bring, uh, which are the examples I think are actually rather compelling, breast reduction, liposuction, and rhinoplasty, uh, demonstrate that a surgical procedure, that a surgical procedure is harmful is something that needs to be demonstrated, not just asserted. Um, now, this is true to a point. Um, and, and the point to which it's true in my mind is that, yes, there are certain kinds of surgical procedures that can be looked upon as, that alter the body uh, in fundamental and permanent ways that can be looked upon as non-injurious, um, aesthetically neutral, or aesthetically beneficial. But one of the things that you have to take into account when you're thinking about surgery is that any time you take a knife to another person, you are introducing all sorts of risks. And so any surgery um, needs to be looked at in that context. And if the surgery is deemed unnecessary, and I don't know that the Benatars would disagree that circumcision is unnecessary. I think they would probably agree with that characterization. If the surgery is unnecessary, then one of the things that you are doing is bringing the risks of surgery uh, in an unnecessary context to another individual. And that's something um, that I think... Now, that doesn't directly relate to their point about mutilation, about using the word mutilation or disfigurement. That was really what at the beginning they were getting at, was that we shouldn't use this word before we explore because using the word mutilation or disfigurement is already uh, a sort of... Uh, you know, you're, you're, you've already stacked the deck ethically by using that term because it has a negative uh, moral connotation. Yeah, I'd prefer to see it uh, as a two-step argument. First, circumcision is an alteration. So it, it might be impermissible on just those grounds alone, the fact that you're changing somebody. And they proceed to show, I think very persuasively, that that is insufficient to conclude that it's morally permissible. To, to put it crudely, Alteration, schmalteration, they say. We alter things all the time. What matters about an alteration is whether it's harmful. And the rest of the argument then says, okay, is circumcision ultimately harmful? Now, that, I think, includes the kinds of considerations you're talking about, like the risk of bringing a knife to another person, the risk of surgery. They feel, is it harmful? Is the surgery harmful? And that becomes, for them, a question 
a kind of consequentialist analysis. Do, let's weigh the overall benefits and overall gains of it. And I think that what you're suggesting, which I agree with, falls into that. I think this, the idea that surgery is dangerous is just one of the harms to weigh against whatever benefits result from the surgery. Right. Uh, and and I, I, I completely take their point that mutilation is a loaded term. It assumes that there is something negative about the alteration. And that's what needs to be proven. Uh, an alteration is not a disfigurement or a mutilation if, if it does nothing harmful to somebody. So, for example, if someone cut off an earlobe from their child, the same sorts of considerations could be given? The same sort of sorts of considerations could be given, uh, except that in that particular example, part of the final calculus has already been settled, which is that it would be harmful to be missing an earlobe because you've got the other earlobe, you'll be, it'd be asymmetrical, you'd look like a freak, you'd be, uh, you'd be a freak in, in common society, you'd, be, you'd have something to explain, you'd have something to explain to yourself, to explain to others. There's a, in other words, there's a cosmetic disfigurement with losing an earlobe, and that's one of the things that people have to take into consideration. It is, it is all things considered a harm to be cosmetically different from everybody else. So, and that would apply to circumcision in non-circumcising cultures as well, then? Absolutely. Right. And non-circumcision in circumcising cultures. Right. Right. Uh, which is interesting to think about, and, you know, I've spoken about this a number of times, that... Um, in a very strange and bizarre way, our culture considers scar tissue to be normal. That the, the circumcised penis from the circumcision scar to the end of the penis is completely scarred over. But that in the psyche, in the cultural psyche of American culture, is what a normal penis looks like. And an intact penis, which is, has no scar tissue, uh, is, considered, is considered to be strange. But that gets to a, a very important issue that I think frames this whole debate, which is we have to decide what the argument we're really having is, what the argument they're really having is. You made a very nice qualification about whether they're talking about routine circumcision or whether a parent can circumcise a child. I think there are two different questions. Should there be a practice of neonatal circumcision for males by parents? One question. Should I, a parent, or you, a parent, circumcise our child? Separate question. Those aren't the same questions, because the question of whether I should circumcise my child is dependent in many ways on whether there already is a practice. So the fact that there is a practice will affect in precisely these areas. It will affect what the cultural cost, what the cosmetic cost, uh, what, the, what the stigmatizing cost is of being uncircumcised. That's affected by whether the practice is in place. But it those kinds of considerations do not speak to the larger argument of whether there ought to be this practice in the first place. You can't say, well, cir circumcision ought to be permitted because otherwise in our culture you'd be, you'd be outcast, you'd be exceptional. Well, the answer is, well, but that presumes the very thing we're arguing about, which is whether there ought to be this practice. If, there shouldn't, if the practice is abolished, we don't have to worry about that. So we have to distinguish between the general argument about whether there should be the practice and the specific argument about whether Given that there is a practice, what should I do? What should you do as a parent? Um, I do want to make one more point on this, and that is um, that there are medical practices that are clearly less harmful. There are surgeries 
that are clearly less harmful and less disfiguring than male circumcision that at one time were routinely practiced and are no longer so. And the things that I'm thinking about specifically are appendectomies and tonsillectomies. Uh, these are practices that at one point in time it was argued, you know, there are benefits to be gained from doing this routinely. So any time, for whatever reason, a surgeon uh, would be going into the peritoneal cavity, they just remove the appendix. Uh, or any time for a routine checkup, you know, a kid had some sort of infection, they just completely obliterate their tonsils. This is no longer done anymore. And I think one of the reasons it's no longer done is because there's a certain understanding that... Um, this is just bad medicine, that you don't cut away healthy tissue in the hopes of preventing future disease. Uh, and I do think that part of that calculation is what I was talking about before with surgery, that anytime you put some, someone under a knife, you're going to have, you're putting them at risk. And to do so without uh, an immediate necessity for some sort of hypothetical future potential benefit is uh, has fallen out of vogue with those two practices. Uh, I, 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 I think I just want to caution. We shouldn't... It's important in these debates not to fetishize anything. Everything is only as bad as it actually is empirically. So uh, surgery, putting a knife to somebody, is a problem. But it's a problem for very molecular, very, if, if, if I dare say, boringly medical quantifiable reasons. There is X amount of risk of infection, from a knife, maybe less from a scalpel. There's X amount of risk. Uh, there's nothing special or sacred about surgery as opposed to any other thing you're doing to somebody that could have a harmful effect. And it needs to be justified by whether the benefits outweigh the harms. I say this not in direct response to what you're saying, but there are cultures that have, these days, our culture, unfortunately, especially um, out here in California, there are cultures and there are views that have developed with general opposition to certain kinds of things done to the body. Some people just generally oppose medical care, or generally oppose surgery, or generally favor herbal treatments, or generally favor Eastern treatments. And I feel like this kind of view is a mistake. It suggests that there is something almost spiritually significant about a certain particular way of interacting physically with a certain body. And there's no reason to think that. Surgery is exactly as harmful as it is in particular cases. Some surgeries are, despite their harm, justified because the benefits outweigh it, and some surgeries are not. Uh, and and it's, it just boils right back down to the very question the Benatars are asking, which is, do the, do the benefits outweigh the harms? All right. So moving on to their informed consent, that, that part of their argument. Uh, again, uh, to reiterate, they argue that uh, they're questioning the notion that it's clear that parents are only morally entitled to authorize medical interventions for clear and immediate medical necessity. And they, the example that they bring are vaccinations. Um, and again, there's a subtlety here because they're not arguing about vaccination and circumcision as public health measures. They're arguing about each practice on an individual basis in a in a society where the di the diseases uh, aren't necessarily as as dangerous as in other societies because every they're assuming that everyone's vaccinated, for example. Um, but I, I I mean this brings up the whole issue about 
whether or not it's okay to vaccinate a kid. And and I think it, it almost begs the question a little bit for the reason that you were bringing up before, which is, well, if we're going to say that, if we're going to reduce this to the individual level and say this isn't about a public health measure and it's not about protecting everyone, it's about making a decision for an individual child, then the question about whether to vaccinate is as morally problematic, maybe not as morally problematic, but it is it is morally problematic right. in the same sense that, that whether or not you circumcise a child is. And the degree to which that child is at danger from disease will determine the degree to which it's morally permissible to vaccinate. So I kind of feel like they're they're missing their own or they're contra- they're, they're they're sort of making their own mis- they're making the mistake that they're criticizing in others here. And I think I think you make a very good good point there. Um, one of the great contributions of Dave Benatar is that he questioned for the first time. Well, actually, uh, Shauna Schifrin, I think at UCLA also raised this question even earlier, and others have have raised it. But he really brought to fore and brought uh, tremendous attention to a tremendous rigor to an argument that maybe it's not altogether clear we should have children in all circumstances just because we want to. That there are, there are moral issues to be raised, even though we routinely have children. And there, there are costs to the children, and there are rights that the children have that we have to answer to as parents, even before they are here to challenge us and to claim those rights. And I think that, that they ought to they ought to be consistently following that line of argument here too, which is, I think, with 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 vaccination, it's a very difficult, invasive question. Suppose that a vaccine, in two percent of the time, permanently disfigures and harms the infant, but most of the time, it's clearly the better thing to do. And I. God forbid I, I, I vaccinated my child and turned out to be one of the few harmed cases. I would be, uh, I would feel awful to face that child in life. And I would, I would feel very guilty. And I'd say, listen, I was stuck. I was in a bad situation. You weren't around. The, f- the future was unknown. And I took a risk. I had what we would call moral bad luck. Turned out that my risk was un, was, uh, was not beneficial, did not pay off. And I would feel uh, like I owed that child all sorts of things for having harmed him, even though it was the right decision given my ignorance at the time. It's the same situation we often face with older pe- people, people who have lost the ability to be autonomous, to make decisions and to express their preferences. We do the best we can, but it's always imperfect, and we have to, we have to proceed in these circumstances with a kind of ethical heavy heart. And kind of a kind of uh, 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 humility that we are now in morally compromised territory, and we're doing the best we can. But perhaps no practice, either yes or no, is going to be morally completely justified. And and I think with vaccination, it's a very similar. We're doing the best we can because we have to vaccinate at that time. But it's not. It's 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 very questionable, and it's clearly not as 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 justified as it is routine. I also, I did, since we're talking about vaccination, want to touch on the arguments that are often brought against, uh, sorry, for circumcision based on vaccination. I oftentimes hear this, uh, this sort of, you know, well, we vaccinated our kids, so we should be able to circumcise them. And I, I do think there are important distinctions between the two practices that don't make it quite so obvious to draw 
one from the other. And the, the differences are, I think, clearly vaccinations are safer than male genital cutting than circumcision. Uh, they have a lower complication rate. I don't think that's controversial in the slightest. Um, they start working immediately and offer near absolute protection. That's an important distinction. Now, there are people, and we'll get to these uh, arguments in a second, the Benatar sort of raised this a little bit without really substantiating it. There are people who argue that some of the health benefits of circumcision only occur if you circumcise infants, and the specific examples brought are urinary tract infections and penile cancer later in life. Um, I'll get to those specific claims in a little bit, um, but... For the most part, most of the benefits that people claim that circumcision convey upon uh, the circumcised uh, are not affected by the age at which you circumcise, with those two exceptions. Um, and finally, vaccinations don't carry with them the accompanying loss of sexual function. Another thing that, that I'll get to uh, in a little bit, which is a very important part of my argument. Uh, but I, so again, I do think that there are important distinctions to be drawn between vaccination and, and male genital cutting. I just wanted to, to, to have that said. Why don't we jump in to some of my problems with their treatment of the empirical data? I have the benefit of being somewhat familiar with this data, having done extensive research for my film and uh, because I talk about this a lot. Um, so I want to just raise some uh, objections to some of their treatment of the empirical data and you know if you have anything or any questions anything you want to say anything that you think I'm getting wrong please feel free to jump in of course um, so regarding complications they argued that um, that the incidence of clinically significant complications is very low uh, they give these figures 0.19% uh, to 1.5% um, and they say that most of them resolve spontaneously or easily uh, treated. Uh, they do mention that there are instances of more severe complications. But the, so my first problem with their handling of the complication situation is I think that their numbers are way low. That's first of all. I think 2% is a low number. And I think that the death rate from circumcision is grossly underestimated. I don't, we, it's very, very difficult to know exactly how many children die a year from circumcision because hospitals don't release these figures. Furthermore, most of the deaths that occur as a result of circumcision-related complications, to my understanding, happen after the child has already left the hospital. Uh, so we don't have good documentation of this. But one out of 500,000, uh, which is the number that they cited, seems to me to be very, very low. I think it's much, much higher than that, an order of magnitude higher, actually. So there are, um, I would say fairly, again, <laughs> difficult to say with certainty on the precise number, but I'd say dozens of children every year in this country alone die from circumcision. That's an important consideration. Again, what you said before is, is true. Um, there are going to be risks to any kind of procedure, but it, 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 it bears noting that I think they underestimate these things. Um, I think they also underestimate the quantity and quality of circumcision complications. Um, again, the, as I said, the, the rate 0.19% to 1.5% that they quote, I can tell you just off the top of my head that meatitis occurs in between 8 and 31% of all boys circumcised. And that's a wide range, but the low end, it's 8%. Um, so that's a lot. 
Um, and the other thing is that the sexual consequences of infant circumcision tend not to work themselves out until much later in life. And oftentimes people are embarrassed to talk about them. I mean, if you have a sexual problem, you're either embarrassed to talk about it or you don't, um, you aren't aware that it's related to circumcision because it's not even something you think about because in circumcising cultures, circumcised men don't think about the fact that they're circumcised. And they might just think that they have some sort of sexual problem. And there are, I mean, there are support groups for these men now and there are groups that help men uh, engage in sort of some restoration efforts to restore the foreskin. I talked about this a little bit in the debate. Um, but but it's clearly, the sexual consequences are clearly sort of under-reported. Um, any, everything from skin bridges that can occur um, to all sorts of problems with um, uh, sexual performance. Um, uh, interestingly, a lot of the men that I spoke to who were in the process of restoring their foreskins got to a certain age at which they started uh, losing sensitivity in their penis. And that's that's what got them started in this whole thing. Um, so yeah, so I think that they sort of underestimate the complications. Um, when they talk about penile cancer, uh, they uh, sort of make a distinction between two approaches to talking about the benefits of circumcision with regard to protecting against penile cancer. And they say, simplistic approach to this issue is to compare the incidence of the disease in societies where circumcision is widely practiced with its incidence in societies where there where only a minority of males are circumcised. Both advocates and opponents of neonatal circumcision have adopted this approach. It is indirect because it does not actually determine whether patients with the disease are circumcised. And what they argue is that what you the kinds of studies you should be looking at are retrospective studies that look at who got penile cancer, which everyone agrees, by the way, is a very, very rare, rare condition. But if, again, we're looking at the individual and is there a benefit? And so they're saying, um, look at the studies that say uh, these are the people that got penile cancer. Uh, this is how many of them are circumcised and this is how many of them are uncircumcised. And they claim that that's direct versus the comparison of populations, which is an indirect approach. My problem with this is that I think that their approach is also indirect. Like, I think that the problem with both approaches is that you're failing to take into account a whole series of confounding factors. Um, and so when circumcision uh, opponents cite, for example, that, that um, Denmark and Finland have lower rates of penile cancer than the United States, despite the fact that they have much lower rates of circumcision, um, they're failing to take into account potential confounding factors, just as the people on the other side who say, well, if you look at the United States and look at the people who got uh, penile cancer and look at what percentage of them are circumcised, they're also correlation is not causation. So that's right. I feel like um, that's a problem right there. Now, not to make an appeal to authority, which I know is a big no-no uh, uh, in, in philosophical argument. No, but... no, not at all. Actually, we're, we're, um, we, uh, we, we're entirely, um, we're entirely prone to appeal to authority. And I say that based on my own conjecture. <laughs> well, in 2000, well, let's start in 1996, 
uh, Hugh Shingleton and Clark W. Heath of the American Cancer Society sent a letter to the American Academy of Pediatrics informing them that the American Cancer Society does not consider routine infant circumcision to be a valid or effective measure to prevent cancers. And the cancers they were talking about were penile cancer and uh, cervical cancer for women. Um, this was reiterated in 2006 and again in 2009. Uh, the current consensus of most experts is that circumcision should not be recommended as a prevention strategy for penile cancer. Now again, the, what, the Benetars, what the Benetars would say to this is, okay, that's, that relates to routine infant circumcision as a prevention strategy, but it doesn't talk to the individual uh, and whether it conveys any uh, protective effects to the individual. But what I say again is the Benatars have failed to meet any kind of burden of proof. And by citing selectively studies in which uh, you may have confounding factors that are influencing the outcome, they haven't actually provided uh, solid scientific evidence that uh, circumcision prevents penile cancer. And that to me... um, and that, that, that sort of is repeated uh, when they talk about urinary tract infections. I, again, I don't want to get too much bogged down in these details, but when they talk about urinary tract infections, there are confounding factors that come into play. Um, so, again, I, I don't want to get too bogged down in the details of the health benefits assessment, but I, I do think that there are flaws in in the ways in which the Benatars weighed the medical evidence for the benefits, and I really don't think that they did a good job in, uh, you know, for example, uh, providing solid scientific evidence, or at least even being honest about the fact that solid scientific evidence doesn't really exist. Just merely counting up a number of studies that demonstrate uh, health benefits, in my mind, is not sufficient. I, I agree. In fairness to them, though, uh, I, I think their overall conclusion is that it isn't obviously beneficial to the point that the answer is definitely to do it. So uh, I know that in one of the results, I don't remember if it was, <coughs> excuse me, if it was penile uh, cancer or if it was urinary tract infection, but there they said uh, circumcision seems to con- convey confer a small benefit on the population, if I remember right. Uh, even there, they're very hesitant to suggest that the answer is, is uh, conclusive. And, and importantly, they don't do a meta-analysis, by which I mean they don't add up the studies and make an empirical conclusion on the basis of what all the studies seem to show or not show. So a meta-analysis ordinarily w- might involve taking a bunch of studies that were already done saying it's clear from the empirical data that the answer is neither this nor that. Because all the studies seem to point in conflicting directions, we can conclude that practice is safe or unsafe, whatever. They don't do that. They just say, they just make a, an entirely negative point, which is that the question, which we don't know the answer to, doesn't find an answer in these sources yet. Uh, and that's that's not the same as coming to the conclusion that therefore we, we can get an answer, which is that it's not dangerous, because we don't know that it is. It, they're saying we don't know. And I think that although they, they do overstep in a few places and say, in fact, it seems to confer a benefit in preventing this kind of cancer, there's I don't know what they say about HIV. I don't remember if they say that in the HIV case, but I think overall, um, overall, the, the the bottom line is that it is not it is not conclusive enough that it's beneficial medically to be circumcised. All right. Now, here 
I want to come to the crux of my argument against circumcision, which has to do with the sexual effects of the practice. And I do feel that they completely dismiss this out of hand. And in the section, in their other considerations section, where they talk about it, they sort of demonstrate, for the most part, an ignorance of uh, some of the more recent research, although it existed at the time. Um, but some of the more recent research into the functions of the foreskin. Uh, and I just want to reiterate something that I said in the debate, which I think is very important. The existence of Meisner's corpuscles in the ridge band is a matter of scientific fact right now. The high concentration um, and estimates of exactly how many there are range anywhere from 10 to 100,000 of these nerve endings in the ridge band of the foreskin. Um, discovered by Taylor in the 90s, confirmed by Hyang et al. in 2005, reconfirmed by Dong et al. in 2007, and neurologically confirmed by Sorrells et al. in 2007. Um, this is established scientific fact. Uh, so the only question then is, can you say, as the Benatars are trying to say, that removal of erogenous tissue does not necessarily entail diminished sexual pleasure if sufficient erogenous tissue remains. What do you think about that? So I, I agree with the claim. Um, I am. I think it is absolutely crucial to consider what you just mentioned about the Meister's corpuscle. I think that without taking into account all the latest neurological and nerve-related findings, we can't fully assess the question of the pleasure effect. But I think this is an area where, although I'm not at all a medical expert, one of the things I study in, in, in philosophy is, is philosophy of mind. And one of the most notoriously difficult scientific claims to make are claims about conscious experiences of certain kinds when you're not the person doing the conscious experiencing. So it's very hard to know what neurologically and what physically at all is a determinant of a, of a certain amount or a certain intensity of feeling. These kinds of things are very are very poorly understood even at the basic level, even at the level that we think we know. So we, for example, we think we have found correlates of certain pains and pleasures in the brain. Right? To put it crudely and roughly, we, we're good at geography when it comes to neurological, when it comes to our experiences. We can know where. Uh, that's about as good as it gets. Uh, we don't know, for example, whether a certain amount of nerve endings in a certain place increases exponentially the pleasure, or whether there's a threshold effect after which a certain after a certain point, for example, you're getting as much pleasure as those nerve endings are going to get you, and just adding on more is just going to be uh, negligible or not even detectable. We just don't know. It, it's not the kind of question. Not only that we do have the answer to it, it's barely the kind of question that we could have the answer to. Uh, there's a fundamental problem because we we don't know. If we have somebody who experienced the add-ons, who says he's having a greater time, well, that's a bit of a biased case because this is somebody who came to, who came to request or to, came to have a change made in the first place. If we don't talk to somebody, if we just go by the fact, well, this is correlated with pleasure, nerve endings are correlated with pleasure, we don't know whether nerve endings continue to be correlated as we increase them or whether there's a threshold, like I said before. We just don't know. And it's, it's, it's very difficult because we just... Science hasn't come up with a direct relationship between physical factors and assessing the intensity or quality of phenomenal experiences. 
I want to give you two sentences that I think are analogous and see if this helps to understand whether their claim is true or not. The first one is, and again, so the original sentence is, removal of erogenous tissue does not necessarily entail diminished sexual pleasure if sufficient erogenous tissue remains. Sorry, so I, did, I didn't address that very specifically, and I apologize. It, it's a difficult claim to assess. That it doesn't necessarily entail that, sure. For all we know, uh, like I said, having a certain amount of erogenous tissue gets you, gets you to a certain point of pleasure, after which any additional benefit from having more erogenous tissue is superfluous. You reach a threshold at a certain point. That could be the case. We just, again, we just don't know. Um, it, it, there's also the fact that sexual pleasure is a complicated psychological phenomenon. It isn't a direct function of having certain physical sensitivities that are lit up. Sexual pleasure and sexual relations consist sometimes of delaying pleasure, decreasing gratification at just the right moment and increasing at other moments, uh, sacrificing extreme intense momentary pleasure for long-lasting, slightly less intense pleasure. All kinds of considerations uh, of those sorts go into what is sexual pleasure. Sexual pleasure is not a, an, uh, reducible to the amount of intense physical sensitivity of this kind or that. I do want you to try on these sentences because I think that, to me, the sentence doesn't work. And I'll, I'll tell you why, uh, and maybe this relates to what you were saying before, but, but tell me what you think of these sentences. Removal of olfactory tissue does not necessarily entail diminished smell if sufficient olfactory tissue remains. My other sentence is, my other analogy is, removal of retinal cells does not necessarily entail diminished sight if sufficient retinal cells remain. Yeah, totally fine. So in other words, there's no reason to think that the amount of vision that you get from a you get from retinal tissue, or the amount of smell you get from olfactory tissue, is directly and is directly constant and proportionate. Right, a certain amount of this kind of tissue is necessary for certain function, but maybe after enough is there, the rest is superfluous. A certain amount is necessary for smelling. Maybe after you get that threshold, the rest is superfluous. There is just no reason to be to 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 be dogmatic about it one way or the other. It's a you know, not, not to be too philosophical, it's a purely empirical question. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the, the 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 analogy works. I think we don't know. Again, we we know that olfactory tissue of some sort and of a certain amount and in certain structure is necessary for smelling. But at a certain point, maybe you've you've uh, overloaded the system with too many. Nerves. And what if you remove most of the olfactory nerve endings or most of the cones in your retina. Again, the question would be, what's the threshold? So what's the amount necessary to have so much that it would no longer matter if you had more? And that's, again, bring out the calculator. I don't know how much. Suppose that, you know, a million nerve endings of a certain kind is going to give you as much pleasure, as much sensitivity of a certain kind as you're going to get from that organ. But there's actually 10 million such nerve endings there. A lot of us, a lot of our biology is unfortunately designed this way. There's a lot of extra wasted stuff that's just there. You know, evolution wasn't a perfect scientist in this respect. And 
there's a lot of stuff that's just there, and we're using you know, a lot of our brain tissue. We use 2% of certain things. We use 5% of other things. Uh, could be that a million nerve endings is enough for a certain sensitivity, and yet we have 10. So you take away 9, you got the million still fine. In other cases, it might be that you need 99% of the, of the nerve endings. Again, what we need to do is come up with a science that tells us exactly what is the effect experientially of exactly this amount of a certain kind of biological tissue. And to that scientific project, I say, good luck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have to agree that it's very difficult to talk scientifically to, about pleasure and pain. In general, I find these things very difficult to quantify. I think that these sentences are absurd. I think it's it's absurd to suggest that if you remove retinal cells, um, and in the analogy, it would be really, I mean, it would be a, it would be a majority of the retinal cells that you aren't going to negatively impact vision. What you're doing in circumcision is removing the majority of erogenous tissue from the penis. Uh, Vision, for example, is a good analogy because vision is not just retinal tissue. It's having enough distance from what you're seeing and enough conceptual apparatus to isolate objects within your visual field, having a few blind spots in your perceptual field. There's a lot of interpretive work to, to seeing something. There's a lot more than direct sensitivity. And when it comes to sexual pleasure, sorry, there's a lot more than direct nerve sensitivity. When it comes to, or optical nerve sensitivity, when it comes to sexual pleasure, again, there's two questions. There's what it, well, the first question is exactly what is the relationship between, uh, how, much sec, how much physical sensitivity of a certain type are you getting or are you losing from being circumcised? The second question is how much is sexual pleasure a function of having that amount of physical sensitivity? Like sexual pleasure, again, is a complicated construct. It, consists in a combination of certain physical sensitivities mixed with certain delays and certain gratifications and certain certain benefits of having of having less at the right time and more than at another time so it's it's definitely not a crude function of how many Meissner's nerve endings you have that's the only thing I know for the only thing I know for sure is it's not going to be a quantitative question of that sort we can however and I think this is the safest thing to say in an area that it's very difficult to talk about I totally agree with you we can say that you are permanently altering the experience and I, I'll tell you this it's not just about the Meisner's corpuscles it's about the mechanics of sex and what we know about the mechanics of sex now is that intact sex um, involves much shallower thrusts uh, and Again, because of the foreskin and the way it functions, it allows for comfortable sex to last longer. The male part in the sexual male, I should say, I shouldn't be heterosexist about this, but let's say the insertive partner, if they're circumcised in order to get the pleasure that they want to derive from the act, they need much deeper thrusts because they're engaged in a frictive action versus intact males what they're doing is actually a shallow thrusting in and out of both the, their own penis and either the anus or vagina of their partner. So it's fundamentally changing the mechanics in that way. And so it is definitely safe to say that circumcision permanently alters sexual experience. Well, I have no reason to, to doubt that. Uh, in fact... 
I have no reason to doubt even the further claim that, that taking away uh, taking away the the, uh, the the corpuscles is going to uh, be sexually harmful. I just don't have any reason to to to, to, to be sure either which way. Uh, I, I want to be very cautious here. I just don't. I I, I think that it's a, it's a, it's it's the, you've, you hit your finger on the most difficult scientific area right now. The area that science is most notoriously blind in, which is conscious experience and exactly how we assess it in light of certain physical evidence. It's not, this isn't a radical philosophy, it's not dualism, it's not uh, mysterianism, it's not the idea that, oh my God, consciousness is separate from the physical. It's a much more of a narrower epistemological problem. Just we just are, aren't quite yet there with, with being able to relate in, uh, in, in an understandable and intelligible way this or that physical phenomenon with this or that phenomenal mental mental state uh it's just hard to do uh, so so who knows but but I, I i don't doubt that the experience has changed and i think if it can be shown that the it has changed for the worse in a significant way that is a strike against circumcision i don't think it decisively settles the debate because that would have to and it, I, i'm sure you agree that then it we just go back to the drawing boards. Okay, so that's the sexual strike against circumcision. Let's weigh it against the strikes for circumcision, and do they outweigh? There's nothing, I think, that's an automatic knockdown in this, in this discussion. I did want to bring up a recent cross-sectional population study that was done in Denmark that found that circumcision was associated, and this was a uh, population study of about 5,000 people in Denmark, circumcised and uncircumcised, circumcised and intact, I should say. Uh, circumcision was associated with frequent orgasm difficulties in Danish men and with a range of frequent sexual difficulties in women. In other words, and this is one, again, I was mentioning before that there are very few studies that look at the sexual uh, effects of circumcision. This is one of the most serious, large, uh, population-based studies that's been done on the subject, and this seems to be empirical evidence. And this was just this came out in May, so this is very recent. Seems to be uh, some of a new body of information, uh, empirical evidence that would suggest that not only is it about, uh, not only is it harmful to the sexual experience of the individual, but there are actual problems when it comes to sexual function, both on the uh, insertive side and on the receptive side, as it were. Yeah, I, I have to say, um, the receptive side I don't think has much weight in this debate. Not because uh, women count any less than men. I think actually with women, uh, the same, the exact same issues apply to what we do to their bodies. But the question of circumcision is: Do we have a right to do a certain thing to a to a male body? We're not touching at that moment the female body who might might ultimately be the sexual partner or the other males who might ultimately be the sexual partner of the particular person we're circumcising. We're circumcising this boy. So the primary con question is what harm will there be to that boy of being circumcised? I mean, uh, if, you know, if, if we, you know, if, if I uh, am worried that my son's going to be a bully, you might say that I can weaken him, you know, do things to weaken his muscle tone and his bone structure so that he will be you know, un unable to oppress other boys. But that would be, uh, I think, a, a strange calculation because um, I have much more of an obligation not to harm my son than to take care that he not harm or that he that, that to take care for all the possible things he might do to someone else. I, I, I do care about that. I think we do have a responsibility to the sexual pleasure of 
our offspring's partners as well. But it's not quite as direct and as immediate as the as the uh, responsibilities we have to our, our immediate son. But if this does hold true, and again, a lot more research, uh, and there's not as much money for research into the sexual effects of circumcision as there is into the health benefits of circumcision, interestingly. Um, you think that's interesting? You think that's odd? I, I mean, I... D- Maybe I'm an idealist, but I I would like to think, look, I personally think that male sexuality is really poorly understood. Um, I think female sexuality is also poorly understood, but I think um, since the advent of Viagra, I don't think people are even trying anymore because the, the sort of financial incentive to understand male sexuality is not the same as it was pre Viagra. Uh, there's a lot of research now and a lot of money being directed at understanding female sexuality because there isn't a female Viagra right now. Uh, that's a whole other subject. But um, I, I mean, I do think that uh, that if this holds true, and again, this is just anecdotal and it's not scientific, but when you talk to men who restore their foreskins, which is a, a lengthy process that takes uh, between two and four years of stretching the skin back, um, they will tell you that the reason they started is because uh, they started to notice a complete decline in the sensitivity of their pe- their circumcised penises, and it was getting to the point where they couldn't orgasm or they couldn't enjoy sex anymore. Uh, and so what they do is they restore uh, their foreskins. Of course, they can't grow back the nerve endings, but um, they do get back a little bit of the mechanical action that was lost. And interestingly, the glands goes from being uh, a sort of uh, outer skin to being more like mucous membrane again, and they say that they regain some sensitivity in the in the glands, which is where their remaining nerve endings are for circumcised penises. Um, so, if this body of evidence continues to grow, I think there's going to be a really compelling case, uh, not only about uh, the the sexual pleasure side of it, but actually about sexual function. And I think the more that that becomes an issue. And the more that people start realizing that, if, if indeed that's the case, that's a, that's a big strike, I think, against circumcision also. I agree. If it turns out that, that we get enough evidence, uh, direct evidence from people that shows that their sexual experience is improved by having a foreskin uh, or is significantly impaired directly and causally by having uh, been circumcised, then I think that that would be a very compelling case against, against the practice. I, I, again, just to keep track of the argument, what needs to be shown by opponents of circumcision is that A, uh, the practice is harmful in this way, B, the harm outweighs the benefits or the harm you would be avoiding by circumcising someone, whatever those might be, uh, including medical and non-medical, uh, and C, that in the individual case, that that holds while the practice is still in place. So it's not as though finding a harm is necessarily going to settle the, settle the question. We then have to, once we find the sexual harm, if there is one, and maybe there is, you've, you've, you've raised certainly the possibility that I think needs to be taken seriously. And I think, as I agree with you, I think is all too insufficiently to, uh, considered in this debate. But once we find, find that, it becomes still a question of weighing harms and benefits. Just to f- uh, wrap it up here, um... Do you want to address some of the non-medical factors that you think would be salient in making this decision? The Benatars actually talk about this in there. They address this directly, and they feel that it's legitimate to take uh, cultural values. Although, to their benefit, they 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 state very clearly that they don't think that um, 
cultural values necessarily trump other kinds of ethical considerations. But if, if you could address what you think that is and where you fall on, on that whole, the non-medical, non-health benefit issue uh, around circumcision, the, the cultural benefits, if you will. So I, I'm very unsettled on this question. I, I don't know what, what to do in practice with, with a child, whether to circumcise a child or not. And um, I feel like at this point, given that it's being done, there are some harms to not circumcising the child. One of which is that if a child is, is raised in a, for example, in a religious Jewish community, uh, I will be exposing the child to a kind of religious exceptionalism. They will be uh, in, a, in an isolated exceptional category. Uh, and it won't even matter if anyone knows it. The child will know it. Uh, religion stigmatizes uh, for whatever reason and the culture of the religion and community stigmatizes this feature, stigmatizes being circumcised or not being circumcised. It's singled out, in fact so central to, to Jewish religious culture that in some parts of the Bible Israelites are simply referred to as the circumcised ones. Uh, so it's, it's, I don't think it's, a, it's, it's a, like every other of these factors, it's just one thing in the mix. Uh, it's just one part of the balance, but I think it's something to consider. I mean, basically the question is whether the child will strongly prefer to have been circumcised. And there are reasons, and I, I think that to me that's, that's the final question. Will, will the child prefer to have been circumcised, not having been circumcised? It's so much what we do in end-of-life debates, when we were, or the final stages where somebody is mentally incapacitated. We try to impute what their preferences would be if they could make an informed decision. And I think we're doing that backwards with, with infants. Uh, it's the same thing. Would the child prefer to have been circumcised? And I think that if, the, if they're raised in a strictly religious Jewish community, for example, or some other religious communities, there is reason to think they might prefer to have been circumcised uh, when everyone else was. Uh, there, then the question becomes, uh, what about other kinds of cultural or social stigmas, and I, I think that sexuality and culture and soci uh, sociology aren't as far apart as 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 as, as we might have thought. And this is already this is already a, a familiar truism, but uh, is it less attractive to be uncircumcised or circumcised? That's a question. Do females find it freakish? Now, this does not speak to the question of whether the practice should be there. Because if the practice, again, as I keep saying, the practice is abolished, you'd no longer be a freak, you'd no longer be stigmatized, you'd no longer be exceptional if you're not circumcised. But as long as the practice is there, the parent has to decide, will my child be a freak? Will he be a religious freak? Forget about whether anyone knows it. Will, will, will they experience life and experience themselves as a religious freak? Will they experience themselves as a, as a sexual or biological or cosmetic freak? I don't know. I think the answer to this question, well, the only thing I know for sure is that these considerations do count as opposed to being negligible and that we don't know how much they count. Uh, it, it's, the, the final thing is, now I, I don't believe, I happen to believe that religiously, you know, I feel like when religions are doing something that is ethically problematic, there are ways that religions have found to adjust themselves to to uh, accommodate what ethics demands. And I think that that's, um, I think that if it turns out that it, the case could be made that, that circumcision is problematic ethically because you do harm the child sexually and the harms outweigh the, 
uh, I think that as a practice, we might there, we we might find room in religious cultures to change their culture. Uh, until they do, however, um, I would worry about the stigmatizing effect. Finally, I think a a, a a fundamentalist religious person has an additional problem, which is that one of the harms is to the the religious integrity of the the person. I mean, if if, if there's a status problem of being uncircumcised if you're spiritually tainted in some way, or, or if you're religiously uh, in violation in some form, or in some other way excluded from a spiritual category. Uh, I can't, uh, if that's the case, and certain parents believe that to be the case, uh, how could we tell them, uh, well, it's, you know, medical, medical harms are more important than harms to the soul. Or harms to the religious integrity of the body. That's it, I. I'm at a loss for how to even address that. Yeah, I, I want to address two points before we wrap it up here. That uh, of what you just said. The first being, it is true that a, a a person may grow up to resent the fact that he wasn't circumcised. The reverse could equally happen, and there's plenty of evidence of people who resent the fact that they were circumcised. And the fact of the matter is, we don't know which one your kid's going to grow up to be. Um, and it's it's impossible to predict something like that. Um, well, I don't know about impossible. I think that these are the kinds of predictions we as parents have to make all the time, which is why we vaccinate and choose an educational program and choose a community in which the child's going to grow up. These are all decisions that we might end up having to apologize to them for. Right. Uh, but we, we do the predictive math, and we do it badly a lot of the times, and that's just the way it is. But, right. but we can certainly do it. I mean, it's, but you don't know. But no, I don't. You don't know. Um, and the other thing is related to the um, the religious issue. I think, and again, if you're a fundamentalist, um, you know, I have a beef with you. <laughs> I, I <laughs> spend, gets a bad name. I, I spend a great deal of time arguing with fundamentalists, although I respect their position more than the religious people who claim that, that we do it for health reasons. Um, but... Um, I do honestly believe that on the Jewish side, on the religious side of things, the religious or spiritual harms to leaving a boy intact are mostly imagined. The actual halachic implications of not being circumcised are, in this day and age, nil. Much fewer uh, than, for example, non-Sabbath observance, which actually has practical halacha consequences today. If you don't observe the Sabbath, you can't be trusted for things like kashrut. Uh, there are all sorts of um, actual uh, halachic implications to non-Sabbath observance. Not being circumcised has no actual halachic uh, implications. Um, and so, Can when I ask? sure, ask you a question? Yeah. If it turned out, I mean, this is an empirical question, right? If you discovered you woke up tomorrow and the headlines said, biologically, there is no harm in circumcision. There is no sexual pleasure, harm. In fact, there's a slight benefit to being circumcised. There was reasons to believe there were, but it turned out they were overcome. We, we did a, a pleasureometer on We invented a pleasureometer. We tested it. It turned out uh, uh, circumcising uh, is actually increases sexual pleasure. It doesn't decrease it. It increases health, but not by a lot. Or, or let's say it's even neutral. We know for a fact it's neutral. There's no harm anymore. It's, it's exactly neutral. Would you circumcise your son? That's a really good question. Um, my gut instinct is to say maybe in that in that situation. I, I'd have to 
sort of unlearn a lot of things that I've learned over the last but, few years. You know, it, 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 empirical questions are famously the kind of things it doesn't make sense to have an ideology about, to be on a certain team about. It's, you know, sure. let the science discover what it discovers, and we switch our values accordingly. That should be the way it goes. And so we, we, all, we, we all have to be vulnerable to the fact that we, to this headline question. We wake up one day, and the headline is the empirical thing we thought, about which in this debate there was never any reason to feel too strongly anyway, because it's, it's such a rare, it's such a difficult thing. It turns out it's the other way. Uh, I mean, I if would you? I mean, yes, yes, I probably would in that situation. But if, why would you, if there's no benefit to doing so on the other side? What do you mean? If there's no benefit? Why? Why? why so, so now it's neutral. Why still? Why, why do it? What's the? What's the? What? What would? What would now count in favor of doing it? Assuming that all those harms are are, are refuted. In this fantasy case. In this fantasy case, I mean, I think uh, it would be. It would just be easier for me as a human being to go through life who's Jewish, who has a Jewish family, who wouldn't have to take the grief of explaining to everyone why I'm not doing this. And, you know, I mean, there are a lot of burdens that come with what I consider to be a realization about this practice that I made uh, some years back. Agreed. Um, so just for that alone, and again, you're putting me on the spot here, but for Sorry. that alone, no, that's fine. It's, it's a very good question. But for that alone, I would probably be inclined to do it just to avoid those problems. Right. The hassle and the hay. But I don't have a, a good substantive reason. And I also think that even if that were demonstrated, I'd still feel like um, this is kind of a... It's kind of a dangerous thing to do to someone. It's an invasion. It's dangerous because I'm creating an open... Again, so we have to sort of take all this out of my mind, but it's yeah. dangerous because I'm creating an open wound on an infant. Like, that in and of itself is dangerous. Um, and and so... And I, and I sort of... When you come back to my uh, argument that I made, my opening statement in the debate, I tried to be as clear about it as possible. I think there are three components to this. Physically harmful, medically irresponsible, morally wrong... I think those three things stand independently of each other. The last one is independent of the other two. It's not necessarily independent, but it can stand independently in the same way that I think a good argument could be made that any f kind of... And again, I don't accept the Benatar's argument about mutilation and disfigurement. Oh. I think that any kind of disfigurement, um, whether it's... You know, taking off an earlobe or, uh, you know, flattening a head or, I mean, these, these are all practices that are done. Or foot binding. Like, I think permanent body modifications are not things that we have the right to do to other people. Well, we have to be careful about the slip from disfigurement to modification. So disfigurement is negative. You're right. I shouldn't use the word disfigurement and I'm falling into the same trap. Actually, if you read closely, the Benatars fall into it themselves in the early part of their essay. They use the word mutilation when they shouldn't. Um, right. But permanent body modifications are not things that I believe, like ear piercing. I don't think it's okay to pierce a baby girl's ears. I don't think that's all right. Um, and I think it's far less harmful than infant circumcision is. But I don't think it's okay to, to put a hole through a baby girl's earlobes. See, that's where I think I, I that's where I part ways with you even hypothetically in other words uh, even before we settle what's what what the empirical stuff ultimately yields I, 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 I think that permanently altering a body is only as bad as the alteration is bad um, 
I think, you know, if, if human beings were all born with, uh, you know, a, a tiny extra tail and everyone snipped it off at birth, uh, it's just part of, you know, you, you get the umbilical cord cut and you also cut the tail and everyone had it, I would think that'd be, it would be a, a no-brainer to, to snip off my child's tail unless proven otherwise. But again, I, uh, I don't have a, you know, these are, these are deontological value judgments. I don't have a, a compelling reason. I, I, again, I just, I'm just not moved by alteration, uh, qua alteration as a bad thing. I'm not particularly um, moved by it either, but you're asking me to answer a hypothetical situation. Sorry, right, where the other empirical harms are gone. Yeah, I mean, my emotional reaction, if you will, and, you know, one of the things that the Benatars go on and on about that they hate is how, how emotive people get about this. Well, to me, it really... How could we not? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I really feel like you're talking about the potential, even if you don't accept my argument, you are potentially permanently altering a person's sexual experience. That makes me, that gets me emotionally riled up. So one way to put your, your objection, I think, that, that, that resonates with me, if you don't mind, if, uh, is to say that we know it's an invasion, we know it's a change. And maybe when we know that much, the, the burden of proof ought to be against ought to be against doing it until proven otherwise. In other words, when you invade and change somebody's that's not yourself, the presumption ought to be that you shouldn't until proven that it's okay to do so. And maybe that's that's a version of what you're of your and and, and I can see that uh, put that way. I can see it. Uh, just just one minor hypothetical. Sure. Um, girl is born with a third breast. It's just underneath. This is what you know. <laughs> Typical philosopher's example doesn't have to worry that it's even possible. But let's imagine that the third third the, breast. It's it not. It's you can avoid third nipple. But yeah, third nipple. Uh, you can avoid showing it. You can avoid having it be seen uh, until the child is old enough to make a decision about whether they want it removed. But it turns out there's a way to remove it at birth with no harmful consequence to the child. You can remove the third nipple now. As it happens, as as we know from female anatomy, nipples are erogenous zones. They increase pleasure. Um, at the same time, third nipples are rather uncommon, especially of the kind I'm describing as a pure philosophical hypothetical. Uh, do you think that it would be at all problematic to remove it at birth and make this child just like every other with the two nipples? Yeah. Not as problematic so as male circumcision. Not as problematic as male circumcision, but definitely problematic. Um, and again, it's a surgery which brings with it risks. I mean, you're in your hypothetical scenario, there are no risks. Yeah, that's a, that's a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, safe world, we. <laughs> but you no, know, but again, on the principle that this is a decision that I don't have any reason to deny the person, the individual, for making. Okay. Um, and again, that's not a strong case. Um, my strong case against circumcision is completely reliant on the empirical evidence that I believe it exists that it's harmful sexually. Got it. um, and again, it's very interesting because when we got down to it, it's it's I hadn't thought about it quite this way before, but it is true that it's it's very difficult to sort of say exactly what kind of harm it is um, or to quantify it. I think quantifying harm in general is a very tricky thing. Yeah. The way I like to, I always try to come up with analogies. And, and the most compelling analogy I've been able to come up with to the effects of circumcision on sexual experience are as follows. If someone breaks my nose and in that trauma, I lose my sense of smell. 
the effect that that loss has on my ability to enjoy food, specifically on my ability to enjoy food, is definitely there, but it's probably impossible to quantify. In other words, I couldn't tell you exactly what percentage of my ability to enjoy food was removed by my loss of my sense of smell. But that doesn't mean that I can't say that I have a reduced ability to enjoy food. What do you think about that analogy? I think it's great. I think it's a, it's a, it's a gift analogy. I, uh, I agree. I think that's one of the difficulties with this debate. And, and this is where I part ways with the Benetors, uh, I don't think it's a difficulty that gets us off the hook. It's just a difficulty that says that whatever we do, we might have a lot to answer for. Um, I think it, my, my challenges to you about the sexual claims, the empirical sexual claims, are not meant to prove that, it's, that, that, that there is no diminishing harm. It's just, just to call attention to how difficult it is to measure this, to show that it's not a direct correlation of how many Meissner's corpuscles. It might not be, for all we know. It might not be exactly like with the nose and the taste situation. It's, it's very hard to know how much, but that doesn't mean that there isn't an amount somewhere. It doesn't mean we ought to be very worried. It might be significant. Uh, we, 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 should, we should be very worried about it. Uh, it's, it's, it's a difficult... Um, it's, a, it's, it's a very difficult thing to, to, to know. Thank you so much, Jeff. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. This was great. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com.